Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 11, our very special audience mailbag edition. For the past few weeks, we've been asking for your opera-related questions. Maybe you're just starting to get into opera, or maybe you're a diehard opera fan. We told you to ask us anything, anything at all. And whenever we felt like we couldn't answer something between the two of us, we called up some friends to give us a hand. Who are those friends? Well, keep listening to find out. So today's the day. Let's reach into that mailbag and find out what you wanted to know about opera and the opera-going experience. Okay, so here's a good one for starting out. John in Victoria, BC wrote in and wanted to know, what is the difference between opera and operetta? Who and what defines the difference? Full disclosure, John is my father. He's a dedicated listener. And uh, thanks for listening, Dad. And thanks for sending in your question. We hope that we do it justice. Julie and I could probably give you a very textbook definition of what the difference is. But we've got the entire COC team at our disposal, so we decided to pull in Johannes Debus. Johannes has been COC's music director for over a decade. He's conducted Salome at the Metropolitan Opera, appeared on the BBC Proms, and has led orchestras everywhere from Berlin to Baltimore to San Francisco. Johannes began by telling us that for him, he usually looks to the prominence of text for a clue. I would say that uh, one main aspect uh, to define the difference between opera and operetta is the element of text or how important the text is versus the importance of the music. Obviously, music plays a key role in both art forms, but maybe in the operetta, the text is even more so in the foreground um, than in opera. Um, In operetta, most often, no, actually, I think always you have dialogues, which, on the other hand, is also something that we see in opera repertoire um, early on. However, then it's called Singspiel. For example, Magic Flute. That's sort of a prime example for that. Maybe we we, we consider the Singspiel as an early form of operetta. I personally do not buy into the notion or the the idea of, oh, you know, operetta is sort of the just the the lighter genre, um, and therefore it's maybe not as valuable as as opera can be. Um, I don't think that's true, uh, and I think it's also it, it requires an immense talent to entertain at a very very high level, which maybe is one important aspect of operetta where you often have lighter subject matters. Do you know do you know any operetta where someone is dying? In opera, unfortunately, we encounter that kind of element quite often. So there is some truth to to the idea that operetta has a lighter uh, touch. Maybe also da- dance elements are appearing more often than in in operas, but uh I think it's hard to to draw a clear line on, and to say, okay, this is clearly operetta, this is clearly um, opera. Yeah, I felt pretty much the same as Johannes. It's 
the the no dying thing really that it it's shorter lighter and nobody dies it's funny because I had the no dying thing hadn't ever crossed my mind, even though he, the moment Johanna said it, I went, oh, of course, you're right. In terms of the whole temperature of the plot, it's, you know, there isn't those, those same high stakes that we encounter in the opera context. So thanks, Dad, for sending that question in and for giving us a reason to chat with Johannes and to dig into this really great topic. Now, we're going to bring back Johannes for a question a little bit later in the episode. But Robin, how about you introduce our next audience question? Pat B is curious about voice types and how those are assigned to different roles. Why are countertenor roles often sung by mezzo-sopranos? When it comes to understanding the voice and operatic traditions around character and story, we knew exactly who we wanted to reach out to. Liz Upchurch is one of the most sought-after pianists and vocal coaches in Canada. She's head of the COC Ensemble Studio, and in her time with the COC, she's helped to train an entire generation of Canadian opera singers, including artists such as David Pomeroy, Christina Zabo, and Emily D'Angelo. Liz began by telling us what a countertenor is. Well, a countertenor is the highest male voice. So if we were to go in order from the bottom up, we would go bass, baritone, tenor, and then countertenor. But the way that the countertenor sings, it's actually in their falsetto. And falsetto literally means um, false little sound. They actually only use a very small part of the vocal folds. But all male voices have the possibility to sing in falsetto. It's not just for a particular type of voice. If any of you are BG fans out there, you'll know that that's singing in a kind of falsetto. It's really possible for most male voices to sing in that range. And that range is not as high as a soprano. So that range in the equivalent of a female voice would be uh, similar to a mezzo-soprano. The majority of roles that mezzo-sopranos sing weren't, ori- weren't originally written from them in the canon of sort of historical, sort of a good 200 years of serious operatic writing. They were written for the male castrati. And the castrati were a total phenomenon. In fact, we still don't really know how that voice sounded. And of course, for those of you who don't know, it was an incredibly barbaric ritual. They would take a young pubescent boy who sort of showed that they had a gift for singing while they were still singing in their boy soprano voice, and they would literally castrate them. And so these young boys would grow up with still their soprano boy sound, but in the body of an adult male. And for actually this this terrible thing has literally went on for centuries. But at the peak of their phenomenon was the 17th and 18th century when castrati were literally like rock stars. 
everybody wrote for them. They were the king's pets. They earned a lot of money. They they had extraordinary virtuosity. Um, and, and this might sound as if that's a, an incredibly long-winded answer to this question, but it is, and it's actually very key to the answer, because once this barbaric ritual was finally and properly outlawed, they had a huge canon of operatic roles that nobody could sing. So they were left with two choices. Either they create that role for an, um, a male voice and probably have it sing it down an octave, which of course has lost the whole point of why it was written in that particular way, or have a female sing it. And so these women took on what they now call the pant role or the britches role. So mezzos started, mezzos and sopranos started to sing these roles. It wasn't until the 20th century that operatic roles for the countertenor even really started to happen. Um, Benjamin Britten writing Oberon was probably the most famous um, from Midsummer Night's Dream. course the countertenors could sing a lot of those castrato roles written from three two three hundred years previously and because there was such an influx of getting back into the sort of baroque world of opera um, this all fed into the world of the countertenor becoming really a sure and certain thing in the canon of operatic roles. And now probably more excitingly so, because many more modern operas are being written for this voice type. And along the same line, Liz, we're wondering, why is Rosina in Barber of Seville performed by mezzo-sopranos and coloratura sopranos? Well, this role wasn't written for either of those voice types. Okay, so this role was actually written for a contralto. And if you remember when we, we said that it's bass, baritone, tenor, countertenor for the female voice, it's contralto at the bottom, and then mezzo and then soprano. So this was written for the lowest of the female voices, but clearly somebody who had extraordinary agility and virtuosity, which you, is required for Racine's singing. is that Rossini was also a bit of a superstar and his music and his operas were played everywhere and so in in you know a little bit like today I don't think too much has changed um you like to see the sort of most celebrated singer do their thing and so Rosina is really one of those roles that now you rarely hear sung 
by the original, the voice that it was originally written for. Um, but you you can hear it. Sung, I mean, really, Maria Callas to Beverly Sills to Joyce D. Donato. To, so you can have absolutely total variety of voices. And because of the nature of the style, you can lift out an aria and actually transpose it. So when Maria Callas would have done uh, the famous piano, the the piano, uh, the singing lesson scene, um, famously this was transposed for her. And, of course, she was so famous, of course you would transpose the scene for her. I don't think they do that for everybody. But also another factor in there is there are so many different types and the role of Rosina is supposed to be a young ingenue. And you don't often hear contraltos sing this type of role. So it does make sense in some ways that lighter voices um, have fit into this role historically, particularly over the last hundred years really grateful that Liz spent that time with us. I mean, she's really busy training the ensemble studio and she's such a wealth of knowledge. She really just reaffirmed for me that voice types and ranges are really reflective of the time that operas were written in. So maybe this is a challenge for current composers since we are more fluid right now mm-hmm. and we are more, we're getting to be more open to things composers, please write more music that reflects our changing values around gender and identity. The COC actually recently hosted a virtual panel conversation around gender in opera. And this topic about voice types and character tropes, it came up quite often. And for anyone who's curious about that and learning more, then you can go to coc.ca slash gender and opera, where there's an archive of that live event. We'll loop back to Liz for another question later this episode, but here's one that comes up a lot. Sandy reached out to us on Instagram to ask us to explain, why is the Phantom of the Opera considered a musical and not an opera? A lot of people have strong feelings about this. It's amazing that decades later, these conversations are still being had and these feelings are still so strong. Exactly. And we thought in answering this question, wouldn't it be great to go right to the source and connect with someone with plenty of Phantom of the Opera expertise? And so that's what we did, reaching out to Rebecca Kane. Rebecca is a Canadian-British soprano who you might recall as having sung the role of Christine when Phantom of the Opera first opened here in Toronto. She's also sung with the COC on several productions. Here's what she had to say. Well, I can't think why you asked me, Sandy, on Instagram. Um, Well, let's think this through, shall we? So uh, it's through sung. Most operas are through sung, right? But no, wait. Let's think about, oh, the magic flute, which you could argue is a singspiel, right? But then there's Fidelio. There are lots and lots of operas that have dialogue, so that doesn't work. Could it be you do six to eight performances a week? Well, let me see. Giancarlo Manotti premiered many of his operas on Broadway. The Consul won Best Musical, even though it was uh, an opera. So no, that's not right. It's not a matter of performances. Miked? Is it because it's miked? No, because originally musicals weren't miked. Um, Oh, this was another theory I came up. Does it have a character who continues to sing while either being fatally ill or mortally wounded? (laughs) Right. And then I thought, wait a minute, Les Mis has Fontaine dying of something. 
either venereal disease, or I should know I was in it, or uh, consumption, very operatic, and Eponine, who, of course, you know, sings a duet after she's been shot. So that disproves that theory. And then I thought, okay, well, let's get serious. Let's think about this. Is melisma, right? So melisma is when you sing more than six, six notes to one syllable, right? So that's often an opera. You often have that. And I thought, I've got it, I've got it. And I thought, ah, 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 riffing. <laughs> People riff in musicals now. I can't riff. When I riff, it sounds like Baroque ornamentation, which is actually what riffing is. It's ornamentation. So that doesn't kind of get. And then, of course, the real thing is, is I believe musicals are text-led and that um, opera is an art form where the sheer vocal quality is all important, basically. And musical theatre is where the characterful narrative predominates through the text. The words come first. Uh, and so to give you an example, if you go and see Rosen Cavalier, you just drown in that gorgeous creamy sound in the presentation of the rose or the final scene at the end. Nobody really cares, or the final scene for in Gutterdammerung for Brunhilde, nobody really expects to hear the words at the end. They're just drowning in the sound. So for musicals, it's text-led. That's my answer. Someone else we thought we'd reach out to on this is Jonathan Christopher. Jonathan actually joined us as a panelist on that gender and opera event we were talking about earlier. He's a Bermudian-American baritone who's worked in opera and musical theatre. He's also performed in critically acclaimed operas and musicals at Lincoln Center, Signature Theater, and Brooklyn Playhouse Theater. It's funny because you'll talk to some opera folk and they'll say, well, obviously it's a musical, it's not an opera. And then some musical theater folk are a bit more confused because a show like Phantom requires such a solid vocal technique and a lot of the characters in the musical itself require operatic training, like Piangi, who's a tenor, Carlotta, who's the big soprano that has to sing a high D and a high E every single night. Uh, but I think from my own humble perspective, it it has to do more with the styles and the conventions of the time. The The original version of Carmen has musical numbers, just like a, regu- like a musical that we know today does. And then there are scenes where there was dialogue just not even sung through dialogue. But then when opera companies found out Carmen was quite popular, they hired somebody to create recitative, which for those that don't know what that is, it's the it's like the dialogue within an opera, but it's still sung. And sometimes there are chords underneath it that are rolling by, um, but it's not necessarily melodic. It just pushes the story from the one big musical number to the next musical number. And that's kind of what Phantom of the Opera is like as well. So in a way, it's operatic in scape. But Andrew Lloyd Webber, the composer, writes for the musical theater. I also think of the show Porgy and Bess, which was originally performed on Broadway. They called it, the Gershwins called it a folk opera. And eventually over the years, it got performed in opera companies around the world, but it didn't hit the Metropolitan Opera in New York until the 1980s. And the show was pretty much labeled as a musical, as musical theater up until then. And then when it returned to Broadway, the convention of having a show completely sung through with classically trained voices has, has fallen out of favor with what we deem as a musical, which is, you know, numbers, scene, spoken scene, musical number. So they rewrote with the permission of the Gershwin estate 
the show. They changed the keys for a lot of the singers. So they were able to sing them eight shows a week and they added dialogue as opposed to the sung through. So it was almost like the opposite of what they did for Carmen, which we consider an opera. Yeah. No, that's a really great distinction. Thanks for pointing that out about the frequency of performances where someone in a musical theater context would be singing that show eight shows a week. And in an opera context, they might be performing twice a week or three times singing that role and how that impacts. And the demands are quite different, but at the same time, they are demands. So Christine and Phantom of the Opera, most Christines are contracted to perform six shows a week. A lot of massive roles that either are physically demanding or vocally demanding in on Broadway and in musical theater. They have an alternate that performs the two other shows throughout the week. I know in Hamilton, which is uh, what I was doing here right before the lockdown, our Hamilton was performing seven shows a week and his alternate or his standby would perform at least one show a week because you're on stage the whole time. And those roles are quite operatic in the sense that it's, it's a big piece. You're on stage from the beginning to the end. And even though it's rapping and hip hop, that's almost more demanding on your voice than using your full body and your full sound to project out into the house to sing 40 to 45 minutes worth of music, which most operatic roles are. I'm pretty excited about this next audio question that comes to us from COC's Ticket Services. And when you think about it, that team is actually the company's front line when it comes to answering audience questions. So we thought it'd be really interesting to hear what do they get asked the most? I'm Nick Davis with the Ticket Services team, a.k.a. the box office. Uh, One question we're asked often is whether a production is set as traditional or modern or some gray area in between. Uh, What would you say is the difference in experience between these traditional and modern settings? I think this might actually be two separate questions. A, what's considered traditional and what's considered modern when it comes to a production? And B, What, as an audience member, can we expect from seeing either one of these? Yeah, great questions. And I find myself thinking, well, asking myself, what do I mean when I say traditional? When I say traditional, do I mean, are they wearing the costumes that someone would have worn around the time that that opera was created? So let's say something was written in 1780. Then is a traditional production something that looks like what a production would have looked like in 1780? Or when that person's calling into the box office to ask that question, are they hoping to see a production that looks like that beloved production that they first saw when they first went to Marriage of Figaro, for example? Are they hoping to recreate that traditional experience that they had? Yeah, those are very different things. And when we're talking about things that are traditional, it's really historically informed. We don't know for sure. So if we're trying to recreate history, why are we just looking to costumes? Should we be turning the the opera house back into a house of ill repute <laughs> where people are beer drinking and gambling and eating peanuts? Yeah. And likewise, like with the Mozart example, so the operas of that time, they were exploring like contemporary foibles and challenging societal structures of the time. So should we then mount an opera that does that, that challenges our contemporary way of being and of seeing and challenges the societal structures that are in place? Because in that way, you'd be honoring sort of the original impetus of the work. So would that be traditional or would that be modern? To me, that says traditional. But 
that's probably not what people are asking when they say traditional, when they ask about traditional. Yeah. So I guess the question is, what is traditional to you? And then hopefully the person on the box office side can sort of share, well, here's what the team is doing. Here's what that creative team is doing and whether we want to label that traditional modern. I mean, there's just so many ways you can interpret both of those terms. Yeah. I always kind of consider this, maybe this question should be more minimalist or present day costuming or avant-garde direction for those really um, challenging at times productions. When someone's asking that question of traditional or modern, are they actually wondering, is this going to be something that I can just go and listen to and not have to think about very much? Or is it going to be something that sort of upsets what I've come to know as my beloved Tosca or my beloved Traviata. And uh, I don't want to be, they just want to kind of go and wrap themselves up in that cozy blanket of the piece that they know and love without having to think about it differently, (laughs) which is legit. That's fair. That's completely fair. Absolutely. I was just going to say, or is it one of those productions where you just have to close your eyes and enjoy the music? And just listen. Yeah. But I love that question about thinking back to those original audience members who attended that first production or the early run of a production when it was created in whatever century it was created and to think about how can I closely, how can I get close to the experience that they would have had when that thing was new and that thing wasn't known to them yet. Uh, And to me, in that respect, I like it when the design team and the director do something kind of crazy and modern with the production, because then I'm on the edge of my seat, not knowing what's going to happen the way those original audiences would have been. That was a great question for us to think on. Thank you so much for sending that in, Nick. And we hope this was helpful for anyone who has perhaps called into ticket services to ask that kind of question in the past. Now, all of this talk about traditional versus modern dovetails really well into our next topic, which actually comes to us from music critic Anne Majette. We spoke to Anne for part one of our episode on opera and criticism, and she wanted to know about the driving considerations when programming an opera house. I would love to hear an administrator's view on deciding whether a show should have a more traditional or a more interpretive approach. I am very interested in interpretive director's approaches, and I know a lot of audiences are horrified at excesses that come out of that. And I would be curious to know how programmers think about that. Excellent question, Anne. And when it comes to planning out an opera season, who better to offer up those insights than the newest general director of the Canadian Opera Company, Perrin Leach? Now, you may recall we chatted with Perrin and outgoing COC leader Alexander Neef at the start of 2021 in episode six. And Perrin was immediately on board with helping us to answer Anne's question. Here are some of his thoughts. Things that appeal to me, the things that I like to see myself as, a, as an audience member and to program are things which have a strong narrative and a really well thought through reason for changing the setting, if if that's the case, or changing the period sometimes. And I think one of the the ways that you do that is when when something starts to fall apart completely after the first act, that's when you know that it was a concept that was a good idea but just didn't really take through. Um, Those are the sort of productions which annoy me as as a patron because you think, well, okay, it was a good idea for maybe 20% of the show, and then it just fell apart and we forgot about it. So what I'm always looking for is that is that the way of, of asking me new questions about a piece. If it's a piece I know really well, it's asking me new questions, framing the story in a different way, telling that story in a different way. And I think that if you leave only talking about the shock value of a production, then production has failed, because you 
you at some point you've taken people out of that narrative storytelling and just gotten into the stage of uh, a mindset a mind space at least of of questioning why you made some decisions do you have any recollections or cherished memories of seeing that done very well where there was a concept that steadily made its way through the entire piece and resonated strongly as a new interpretation of the whole Sure. I, I think there are, there are many examples of it. I, I think that um, there was a production of Jephthah, which was a, a Handel oratorio, really, which had a concept put onto it, but the concept was thought all the way through and characters were added, some singing, some non-singing, that made the story and, the, and that concept work. And at no point did you, f- did you feel that, that the concept wasn't there, that the, 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 the narrative wasn't central to the concept. Um, and then there are m- many more examples where it doesn't work, and and something has been updated. I think some of the you know the Peter Sellers updates of the Mozart operas, for instance, I've only seen them on video, but I think that, that you know Don Giovanni as a CEO in a CEO role, I would say it didn't completely work, but but you didn't question it enough because ninety five percent of it did work, and therefore you were able to just lose yourself in this. Oh, he's got that power. He's not the count. He's the CEO of an organization. Therefore people have to tolerate his the way he treats people the way he he interacts with people and the rights that he believes he has uh, are all set within the context of you know of a, a corporate ceo that made a huge amount of sense to me uh, as someone at that point who was relatively young and starting in, in working for the corporate clients is there anything that inspires you in particular when it comes to highly interpretive choices of canonical rep no, I, I think each piece is different. I think once you start to say one size fits all, it, it has to be, though, driven by stuff that's within the, the narrative of, of, of the libretto and the writings. So we did a very modern version of the Ring Cycle in Houston, Texas, um, but the, it all held together because it was all based in what the original libretto and story was, and nothing that was was added and, and people say well it was all modernized up and everything and that's definitely true but the reality of it is that nothing was added that wasn't in the original story um and, and you know and, and actually when you look Wagner is so specific about how he wants things doing and setting and and people sort of try and rebel against that but in real terms it's the story of the ring is is incredibly clearly laid out and and it is open to interpretation on on, on how you tell that story but if you lose the story, then you've, I think you've lost your audience. I mentioned earlier that we received a whole range of submissions when we put the call out for questions for this episode. I think it's fair to say this one is coming from someone with a fair bit of opera expertise. Zane wrote in to ask, what is the company's official favorite selection from the 24 Italian art songs in Arias book? Now, there's probably way too many people with very divergent thoughts on this answer. So to get you one solid one, Zane, but we did want to dig into this for you. And so we're going to go back to two of the COC team members that we spoke to earlier. Let's bring back COC music director Johannes Davus and Liz Upchurch, head of the COC Ensemble Studio. Yes, mine is Amarilli Mia Bella. The, the simple reason for that is it's probably the one of the first songs in in Italian that I got to learn or to to that I encountered when I was a little boy and it is a beautiful song there's always this name of amarilli amarilli of course is also this flower the amarillis and always at the end of the 
sort of the verse, there's this beautiful melisma on, on this name. And it's kind of embellished, almost like beautiful flowers. It's a love song, obviously. Later on, I remember I, I played a, played a concert with a friend of mine who uh, was a f- or is a fabulous recorder player, and uh, we played some sets of variations on that song because at that time it was was a bit like I would say like Lady Gaga uh, or, or, or I don't know other artists of that genre of that time. It was really the popular uh, repertoire. Everyone must have known it and, and, and sang it. I can tell you that my favourite is Caro Mio Ben, which was written by Giordani, And the poet, I believe, is um, anonymous, but every voice type has sung that. If you want to see Pavarotti sing this, which is, I'd probably say, has to be one of my absolute favorite renditions of this, you can hear basses sing it, you can hear high sopranos sing it, you can hear it with orchestra, you can hear it with guitar, you can hear it with piano. There's even a recording online going back to 1903. I can play you a little bit. Just that tune, it's so simple. Just those three little notes, so simple and yet so beautiful, and with an operatic core to the poem, which is, you know, dearly beloved, you make my heart languish after you. Does it get any more operatic than that? But it's not actually an operatic song. It was written by an Italian for a concert, I believe, in London. Caro mio ben. Enjoy it. Excellent. Well, thank you. And thank you, Zane, for the question. And happy birthday, Zane. We're, we're told that today, the premiere of this episode is your birthday. Oh, and happy birthday. Yes. I could probably do a version of... Now, we talk a lot about the COC's main stage work and the history of the company, but presently the company is also heavily involved in schools and communities through musical programs taught by a wonderful staff of COC teaching artists, often in partnership with different community leaders. And as we were planning this episode, we wanted to hear from students about the things they wonder about in their experiences with opera. Here's a really great one from the grade 9 MID class at Hayden Park Secondary School in Toronto. They wanted to know, how do you come up with a costume for the opera? Julie, is this maybe one you'd like to put your director dramaturg hat on for? Yeah, I would love to. So there's a lot of collaboration involved. So for example, if I'm directing a work, then I'm going to chat a lot with the costume designer and I'm going to compile a whole bunch of um, images, like maybe create a vision board or something like that, maybe use Pinterest or some other means to do that so that we can all get on the same page in terms of what is the world of this show that we're creating. For example, where is it set geographically? Where is it set in time? What is the era that this piece is set in? And in that case, you might do some research around what did people wear? 
then you want to sort of know what was commonplace for people to wear at that time. Was it a time where women often wore skirts or are we transitioning into a time where women would wear trousers or what does it mean to wear a skirt? What does it mean to wear trousers and things like that? So what are your costumes saying in addition to everything else that's going on in your production? Um, And what's really great is that in terms of collaboration, there's the designer, there's also a team of builders and people who supervise all the wardrobe stuff. And if you're interested in knowing some intricacies of that, you could go back to episode four, where we spoke with Sandra, who's head of wardrobe here at the COC, and she's got lovely insights. And I imagine comfort is really important to you as well. Um, Absolutely. Like you have to have comfortable shoes. When famous Swedish soprano Birgit Nilsson was asked how she prepared for the role of Isolde. She said, comfortable shoes. So important. A funny little anecdote. I wore Russell Bronze knee pads in the Louis Riel production. He was not using them for his role. It was from a past production. Opera companies have their store of costumes and they might reuse pieces. So you might find yourself wearing a costume piece that another singer wore maybe two years ago or five years ago. And I think that's lovely because then you find that you're part of this tradition. You feel like you're participating in something that goes beyond the single production that you're in and connects you to all these other artists. The other thing I think about Robin is about like, what does the singer have to do when they're wearing that costume? Like knee pads, usually you need that when you have to be down on your knees or down on the ground and thinking about what does that mean for their pants that they're wearing? Do they have to be reinforced in the knees, for example? Mm, Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. But now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. And undergarments, like what someone's wearing Mm -hmm. under their, their, and that might contribute to the silhouette. So the line of the costume and how that looks on stage, but also maybe they have scenes where they need to be intimate with someone else or where there's nudity or something like that. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into undergarments and quick changes. So how quickly do they have to change between one costume piece and another? And actually, there's one more question that we received from Hayden Park's grade nine MID class, and it's a really excellent one. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know, how do opera singers get their voice to travel so far? You know, it's still a big surprise to a lot of people that the sound you hear when you go to an opera doesn't rely on the use of mics or amps. Since we were already speaking with vocal expert Liz Upchurch, we asked if she could break it down for us in 60 seconds or less. The operatic voice is somewhere between an it's half athletic and half artistic but there's a scientific reason why you can hear them. And it's not that they're singing louder than the amount of people playing in the orchestra. You can have up to hundred, over 100 people in the pit. There's no way that one person can sing louder. So this is a very good question. Why can we hear them sing over or through this enormous amount of sound? It's because of actually the frequency that the human voice resonates at. And so basically, operatic voice is trained to live to the full extent in that frequency, or the formant, I believe it's called. And this takes a lot of uh, passion and commitment. Yes, a lot of training. But as I say, it's not about singing louder. It's kind of learning to make your your entire body the resonator for your instrument Hope that, I mean, that's a very brief little way of putting it, but um, it's somewhere between science and what the composer writes. 
It's so interesting, that idea of the human body as a resonator, because when we asked the same question to professional vocalist Jonathan Christopher, he almost mirrored Liz's response in comparing the human body to an instrument all its own. So you have your whole body. Your body is your instrument when it comes to singing. And when you sing in so many different styles, which is, for me, very important, as much as I love opera, I love musical theater. As much as I love musical theater, I love gospel music. As much as I love gospel, I love pop music. And many of my teachers along the way have told me that I want that I should probably focus on just one thing in order to be fully successful in it. But I myself am too too passionate about music in general. So I'm happy that I had training in opera that did prepare me for musical theater. But then I did learn some different techniques in order for my voice to sustain eight shows a week. So in opera, you know, our support comes from our abdomen. And depending on the teacher that you study with, it's whether or not you release your abdomen as though it's like a big barrel and you kind of, or you have a rubber tube around your, around your stomach and you try to press out to kind of get that support and feel like a buoy that's, that's wading in the water. And then you have to use the muscles in your face as a kind of like a, a resistance in order to get this big full sound out. And when you're walking into a theater, you know that your sound has to get from where you are up to the very last balcony where the cheap seats are. They're up there. So you want to sing to them. So you learn the musculature and the, the kind of the anatomy of your body to know what it takes to to sing to those people out there and it's it's a lot of work you don't necessarily have to have a big booming voice it depends on what we call the resonators which are in your skull like there are all these different holes and and cavities in your in your head which make it like a big speaker at a at a concert, like at a Beyonce concert or something that amplifies her sound so she can get out to the cheap seats. We use our own bodies to do that. And through a lot of studying, you you figure that out. Whereas in musical theater, you still have to support the sound that you're creating, but you also have a microphone to help amplify, especially nowadays. Maybe back in the 1930s and 40s, you hear a singer like Ethel Merman where she had a loud sound because she had to. There weren't microphones at that time. So you use these different uh, these different parts of your, your face to kind of make that sound go from, from where you are all the way to the back. But we don't have to play with that these days. And uh, you still have to project, but you also want to make really good friends with the sound engineers, especially when you're on tour with the musical because you, it's almost at their you are at their mercy when you're doing a musical they mix your sound they make sure that the sound is balanced between the band that's playing underneath the stage the ensemble the principals so everything sounds like a beautiful rock concert in a way that's at least what hamilton is Thanks again to the grade nine students at Hayden Park's MID class for these great questions. We hope you got a better sense of how opera production and performance works. 
You know, it's interesting that a lot of the time people think that if you work in opera, you must know a lot about opera, but that's not always true. Learning's definitely a lifelong journey. And in planning this episode, we got some opera questions from a few COC staff members, including members of our own production team. One question that comes to mind in particular is, why does it feel like there's so few English language operas? Since we were already talking to Johannes Debus, we posed this question to him as well. Here's a little bit of that conversation. In terms of the the amount of repertoire that has been produced in English in, in opera, um, there's a bit of a gap. I mean, after Purcell, you find some some things, of course, in the in the 19th century, late 19th century, Delius and and others, um, and, and yes, Benjamin Britten. I mean, we did we did the Midsummer Night's Dream at the CUC, uh, at least in the last 10, 11 years. Peter Grimes, the company has done Rape of Lucretia, uh, Turn of the Screw, and I I think those are all yeah absolute masterpieces. They're great. Great, based on great stories, the, it's it's always extremely exciting and it's, it's extremely well written. Then there's something like Stravinsky, the Rake's uh, Progress, and and of course um, now you have a, a huge amount of repertoire um, uh, from the UK, but also from other English uh, spoken countries, North America in particular. Um, I think there's a lot happening, and I'm sure that we will see and hear more obviously i'm not a native speaker but from what i understand it's actually very very tricky to perform to sing in english well and that might also be one aspect why people have the impression and the notion that uh, that this this repertoire repertoire in english is a bit neglected do you have a favorite english language opera it might be peter grimes i think i think Peter Grimes is, is one of those pieces that it, it has it all. You know, it has the, the large scenes. It has um, also the focus on the individuals and their tragedies, so to speak. Uh, the the music is of such variety and, and, and mastery. The score writing is so powerful the use of all the forces chorus soloists but then also the orchestra with those interludes um it's it's really breathtaking and you go from like at the very end you only hear a foghorn basically you know you go from very very little to uh the largest storm scenes and i think that yeah so that's that's it's a it's a piece that somehow showcases possibilities, the range of, of, of opera and the immediacy, it, it can really, you know, it can hit you and it hits you then right in, in your heart. Our next question came to us from theater critic Karen Fricker. We'll actually be chatting further with Karen on an upcoming episode about the future of arts criticism. But when she found out that we were doing this mailbag episode, she thought it would be the perfect time to learn the answer to something she's always wondered about. I'm curious about what opera singers eat 
on the day because you know you hear a lot about like how to run a marathon and the pasta stuff and i'm just wondering if you're going to sing a big big role what's the philosophy and is it is there a philosophy or does is it completely dependent on the person is it dependent on what register they sing in is it dependent upon their physical size um so that's my question what do you eat this is such a great question and this is so different for everyone i know i don't like to feel too full but i don't want to be hungry either yeah i agree everyone's going to have their own little tricks of the trade and what makes them feel good and confident going out on stage we decided to widen our nets on this and bring you some answers from a range of performers working across opera and musicals our friends at Amplified Opera wanted to weigh in. Here's co-founder Teaka Sahara. I typically eat something that is quite hearty and nutritious, so energy that I can pull from for quite a few hours. So something with complex carbs, a lot of protein, no spice. I don't want any acid reflux or any kind of acidic things. So usually no tomato, anything. Um, dairy depends, but I think everyone is different. That's what I eat. Here's what Jonathan Christopher had to say when asked about his pre-show eating rituals. It really does depend on the person, and it also depends on the idiosyncrasies and the neuroses of a person. (laughs) I know when I was in my master's degree, at least, there were a lot of us that were just kind of freaking out about the next steps of what happens after you receive your master's degree. And I worried myself so much. I did start to get was it acid reflux. And there were days when I couldn't sing. I'd go into my voice lesson and it would just be, ah, ah. or I was doing, I forget which opera I was doing, but at the same, like my, the muscles in my throat would start spasming. And I was like, okay, this isn't great. So what do I do to make sure that this doesn't happen in performance. And most of it does come down to diet. But at the end of the day, too, it kind of just comes to where you are physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as a as a performer. And you learn that through time. In terms of opera, I, ne- I don't necessarily want to have a full stomach before I go on stage. I like to, or in musical theater as well, I'll take maybe, like I'll have an energy drink or not necessarily a cup of coffee, but something that would kind of, that wakes me up, but also gives me enough energy to do a three hour show. Well, I'm vegan. So I kind of eat vegan junk food. I love falafel, but I try to have stuff that's not too acidic, but also the more I worry about it, the more I become neurotic about whether or not the food affects me. And since I don't eat dairy anymore, that doesn't really factor into what I eat. But I know a lot of people that have very strict diets in order for them to make sure that their throats are as prepared and as clear and as clean as possible. Um, I was just watching an interview with Leontine Price earlier today. And if you don't know who Leontine Price is, she was one of the more one of the most prolific voices of the 20th century. Uh, she, as a as a black opera singer, she was an inspiration to me and to so many others. The adversity that she went through paved the way, so I could, so I can be where I am today. She said something about her private life was free from various temptations, whether it was you know the night before a show, going out to a party, or 
having a big, big meal that might affect her voice the next day for that concert or for that opera. Our, our job as artists is to give our best selves to the public in the theater. So throughout your years of study and throughout your young career, you figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And if that comes down to someone eating a big piece of lasagna before they go on stage to do La Traviata, then that's what it is, you know? And if it means not necessarily having a meal from noon on until after the show, then that's then that's that person's convention. But it really does depend. Well, thanks for for sharing your particular experience on that and also pulling in sort of the wisdom of artists who have come before us in previous generations. That's great too. Thank you. There's one final question that came through to us on Twitter. And it's from a performer who's no stranger to the COC's main stage. Audiences might remember soprano Carrie Alkema as the foreign princess in the COC's Rusalka in 2019, or as Giovanna Seymour in COC's 2018 production of Anna Bolena. She also co-hosts a weekly YouTube show with soprano Sandra Radvanovsky, and it's a lot of fun, so do check it out. She tweeted, with the pandemic, or possibly endemic, I wonder what our art form as a whole will look like in three, five, ten years from now. So we thought this might be a nice one to ruminate on as we wrap up. What do you think, Robin, three years from now? Oh my gosh, even just three years from now, will we have the ability to all sit together and commune in an opera house together? Will we be distanced in that? Will we have intermissions? All of these things are going to really change the landscape, the answers to these. Right. Like, will I have people sitting on either side of me? And will will we be in there sort of in that beautiful, tight, compact experience altogether or not? Uh, and also thinking, had you know, three to five years, you know, we had Cherie and Ian who shared with us about their collaborations. It's on episode five of the podcast. And I'm hoping that three to five years from now, we're seeing that production come to the stage and that it's really uh, indicative of this wealth of Canadian storytelling that's beginning to take over our main stages, not take over our main stages, but really have its place, its rightful place on the main stages uh, of the country. And I expect hybridization is going to become the norm that live performances will have a lot of digital content for accessibility whether it's unpacking themes seeing backstage bonus things uh even getting to see performances when you're not able to get to the theater itself yeah, I agree with you that that opera isn't just about what happens in the opera house, but opera is this thing that can connect us and that we can all be connected to, regardless of whether or not we're able to gather together in the opera house, but that there's many different pathways in and ways that the art form is evolving and percolating. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how the tech, the use of technology that we've been incorporating since the pandemic stays and how it grows over the next the next few years. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's exciting too to think right now, Robin, we're having these conversations that are a bit removed from main stage opera activity just because there really isn't any, but to think that this is a place that we could talk about productions if they were happening and we could right. chat with people who are working on the productions and sort of have... Uh, yeah, have a, a place to to add to people's experience or to expand the experience of attending the opera. I love the idea 
of us having episodes that act in support to productions that are happening at the Fourth Season Center. Mm-hmm. And I love what you were saying about all those different things that can support that experience, whether that's insight into what's happening backstage or getting to know one of the performers or getting to know what's going on in the pit and getting a better sense of connection to those individual musicians who are making the magic happen down there. Uh, a lot is possible and we've uh, we've been forced to explore and to innovate and hopefully we'll bring it along with us when we also bring back that thing that we miss so much. One final thought. I mean, the conversations that we're having about identity and gender and opera and racial identity, they were conversations that were happening before, but not at the decibel level they are right now because of the pandemic. That's really exciting. How is that going to change productions in the future? I expect for the best much of the time. I remember Rena saying on episode seven, she said, I'm, I just want more opera and more people who feel represented and feel included and feel like they can come and enjoy the art form. Speaking of more, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us. We also want to extend a special thanks to all of our guests. COC General Director Perrin Leach, COC Music Director Johannes Stabos, Head of the COC Ensemble Studio Liz Upchurch, Actor and Singer Jonathan Christopher, Amplified Opera Co-Founder Taya Kasahara, and Soprano Rebecca Kane. We loved hearing your questions, and we hope that we were able to satisfyingly answer a few of those head scratchers. But please feel free to keep sharing your questions and feedback at any time. You can tag us on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. You can also send us a voice memo, and there's instructions for how to do that at coc.ca slash keychange. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received so far and the reviews you've left on Apple Podcasts. And remember, if you're a COC subscriber or member, you have access to exclusive bonus content and extended interviews. Next week, we'll have more from our chat with Rebecca Kane. So if you're a COC supporter, keep an eye out for a link in your supporter newsletter on Thursdays. Coming up next episode, we're diving into our spring season with an exploration of opera and contemporary art. Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson will join us in conversation along with Adelina Vlas of the Art Gallery of Ontario, where Ragnar's work is currently on display. See you then! Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly e-opera newsletter at coc.ca slash e-opera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.